Hey now, we are getting over, and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times, with your Wednesday Night Wars edition of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back to talk all things NXT and AEW Dynamite, coming off what I would consider a very uneven Wednesday night of professional wrestling action, really for the first time this entire year. And and Wednesdays in 2021, let's just be honest, folks, have not been easy, both in the real world and in the professional wrestling world. But nevertheless, things had been pretty consistent from a quality standpoint. The Silver King did not believe that was exactly the case. But we will break that down over the remainder of this podcast. For now, to get started, we do need to take care of a little business. First and foremost, do not forget to head on over to Twitter and give us a follow at Getting Overcast. Not only that, the benefit of following us is you can reach out to us directly via tweet, via DM, send in DM slides and questions for this show. WWE, we talk on Tuesday. NXT and AEW, we talk on Thursday. So after you watch the shows, if there's anything you want to tell us, any questions, more importantly, that you want to ask us, do not forget to slide in those DMs, reach out, and we will get you on your favorite professional wrestling podcast. Also, do me a favor, stop being freaking marks for yourselves. Go back to being marks for the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Stop being marks for yourselves and go back to being a mark for me. Hit up Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review. Let other people know how much you love this show. Every single review, every single rating helps us grow. And word of mouth is perhaps even more important. So if you're on online wrestling forums, if you tweet about wrestling, tell people to listen to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Tell them why you love it. We want to grow in 2021 And the goal is to double the audience. I don't know if we're going to get there, but that is the goal. If we can double the audience, all of a sudden we're a major player in this podcast game. So that's the goal. That's what we're trying to do in general in 2021. But as far as what we're going to do on today's show, we're going to talk NXT and AEW Dynamite. And this week, folks, I thought there was a clear winner between the two shows that has not been the case recently, where both of them have been exceedingly strong. But this week, despite not necessarily putting on a strong show in its own right, I just thought NXT blew AEW out of the water from a quality two-hour wrestling presentation standpoint. And we're going to explain why that's the case. Again, if you are not a longtime listener, if you're someone who's relatively new, every single episode we have timestamps. So if you only watch AEW and that's all you want to hear about, you can go jump to the AEW section. If you only listen to NXT, you can keep listening right now. And then just turn it off, I guess, after. Or I would suggest listening to the entire episode no matter what. So even if you only watch one show or the other, you have an idea of what's happening on the other program. So with that, I want to start on a positive note. So let's talk about NXT and we'll begin with the main event, the freaking fight pit. Not beef in the sense that we normally talk about beef on this podcast, your biggies, your Braun Strowmans, but Timothy Thatcher and Tommaso Ciampa beat the ever-loving shit out of each other in the fight pit. I love this gimmick. That's the most action I've had all year. It continues to be great. I mean, it's only two for two at this point, but it's batting a thousand. So any gimmick that's going to bat a thousand, despite having two matches in relatively short order you're off to a pretty good start, at least as far as the Silver King is concerned. So with the fight pit, they darkened the arena and added some weird small spotlights to the catwalk that's on top of it. I wasn't a huge fan of how that looked. I do think it was different from the Matt Riddle one that we had a few months ago. They were going for like a grunge aesthetic, but to me, it just made it look more like a video game. I wasn't too fond of that. Once they got into the pit, this match rocked as the last one did. Champa drilled Thatcher's head into the cage a few times with his knee. Thatcher pinned Champa to the canvas and manipulated all of his joints. This was a real ass kicking on both ends. Thatcher was grinding Champa's head into the grate, 
So he low blowed him, which was legal in this match. The referee couldn't do anything. Then he hit Willow's bell with Thatcher draped over the referee's back while the referee was bent over. That was such a great spot. Champa drilled Thatcher's head into the steel grate and hit fairy tale ending, but he didn't go for the fall. Instead, tried a chokehold. Thatcher broke it by throwing Champa into the cage. Thatcher then wedged Champa between these like open steel grates, wrapped a knee around his neck and did a modified stretch muffler as Champa had no choice but to tap out in the corner. Thatcher then kneeled in front of Champa, and it seemed as if there was some mutual respect between the two guys. They're now one-on-one. Champa got a victory in a regular match at TakeOver, and now Thatcher won in the fight pit. But this thing was a freaking war from start to finish. It was the right booking to put Thatcher over, considering it was in the fight pit, and they are basically making this his signature match, which is fine because Timothy Thatcher kind of needs that type of gimmick. He needs something extra because, you know, we're honest, he's very plain from a personality standpoint. So it made even more sense that Champa got the takeover win, knowing that you were going to come back here and give Thatcher the win in the fight pit. But this thing was absolutely brutal. It lived up to the billing. I at first had no idea what either of these guys was going to do. And I still don't know what they're going to do as singles eventually. But it does seem like something is popping up with them. And we will talk about that a little bit later in the show. But a very strong main event to NXT. They did themselves. They did the gimmick. Very proud. And I mean, both shows, I thought the main events were solid. That's the one thing you can say about NXT and AEW this week. Both main events delivered. This one was just, it's my cup of tea. The fight pit rules. It's always going to have me kind of giving it a little bit of an extra break. But in this case, it didn't even need one. It deserved it. Thing was awesome. The other major storyline, aside from the tournaments going on with NXT, is Finn Balor finding his footing now that he's fully back from injury and challengers basically competing for the his attention and William Regal's attention. So Pete Dunne, early in the show, cut a video package promo on Balor saying they developed similarly in the UK, but Balor left while Dunne stuck around and built a brand in NXT UK. Dunne said it's inevitable that Balor will pass the torch to him. It's not yet official, but you do have to expect that this is going to be the match for NXT TakeOver on Valentine's Day. Later in the show, Balor demanded to fight Dunne. Uh, he was talking to William Regal. He demanded to fight Dunn, but said he knows things can go kind of sideways when you just demand a one-on-one match right away. So he would be willing to take out Oni Lorcan and Danny Burch first. Regal said he wouldn't book Balor in a handicap match, so he needed to go find a partner, even if it's an enemy. So when he said that, I mean, you knew this was going to be Kyle O'Reilly. Balor said there were a couple people who owed him a favor. He visited the Undisputed Era locker room Asked O'Reilly, they did this really long extended stare down and O'Reilly eventually accepted and agreed to be his tag team partner. So that certainly provides a little bit more explanation into last week's storyline. And now you know why he's not really aligned with the Undisputed Era, he being Balor. It's more just they're working the storyline where he's going to team up with Kyle O'Reilly. Clearly, the expectation is they'll win. Or even if they don't win it, it'll at least... Uh, help move the Finn Balor-Pete Dunn storyline forward. Maybe Dunn interferes and that costs them. But we're ultimately going to get Balor and Dunn at NXT TakeOver on Valentine's Day, which leaves us wondering when we're going to next see Karrion Cross. And Karrion Cross had a match with Ashanti v. Adonis. Uh, Cross caught Adonis flying, hit a suplex, rolled into a Saito suplex, hit a second Saito suplex, and then drilled Adonis with a forearm to the back of the neck for a total squash, one, two, three. I really don't think I'm a massive fan on the forearm to the back of the neck when you have the Saito suplex, but at the same time, the Saito suplex maybe is more of a setup move, so you need that additional finisher. I just think the forearm to the back of the head, it takes way too long to develop. It doesn't have a name. Maybe he should wear a, a patch or a elbow pad on his arm or a forearm pad of some type where it makes it seem a little bit more impactful because it just, it doesn't look like it's as devastating as it really should. So I'm not totally sure that I love the finisher yet, but I'm not completely against it either. Uh, After the match, Cross locked Desmond Troy in the straitjacket, 
when he tried to help Adonis after the match. These guys, Troy and Adonis, were in or are in the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, so that's why he was there. They've kind of been working together a little bit. I would rather, in general, NXT not use guys who are about to compete in a tournament like that as jobbers, but they booked this as a neck injury for Adonis, who now can't compete in the tournament, and they're doing a storyline off of it. So clearly, they were placeholders from the beginning. Uh, They showed a couple videos on social media after NXT was over, and I really wish they had done this on the show, but they simply couldn't have given when the fight pit was. Maybe they could have done it at the beginning of next week's show. I don't know. I just wish it got more, you know, time in front of eyeballs than what I'm about to explain to you. I feel like I'm going to be telling all of you this and you didn't actually see it. That should never really be the case. Anything I say on this podcast should ideally be something you've seen, unless it's some obscure match that I'm pointing out. So what basically happened is Champa was getting checked by trainers after the match. They were checking his knee. The trainer let it be known that Adonis had to pull out of the tournament. And then in a second separate video clip online, Champa found Thatcher in the parking lot, basically dapped him up and said respect you know, for the match. And then as Thatcher was walking away, mentioned that there was an open spot in the Tag Team Classic and Thatcher nodded his head. So it seems pretty clear that Thatcher and Champa, at least temporarily, are going to team up and be in this tournament. Uh, we'll talk about the men's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic in a little bit. First, I want to talk about the women's classic. So Beth Phoenix returned to NXT for in-person commentary. She's been doing it from her home. And the main reason she was there was to introduce the start of the Women's Dusty Roads Tag Team Classic. This was done very well. There were awesome black and white photos of all the female stars from NXT. Those were shown across the entire Capitol Wrestling Center on the screens. It just made it feel as if it was a big deal. And I appreciated them going to that length in order to begin this tournament because it is starting at the same time the other one's going on, and otherwise it could feel a little bit lost in the shuffle. However this ends, my hope is that the women's tag team titles get to hang out in NXT for at least a few months, because in NXT, the division is so stacked, they're actually going to get used, whereas on Raw and SmackDown, they're almost forgotten about. But we only had one match on this show. It was Tony Storm and Mercedes Martinez against Caden Carter and Casey Catanzaro. Storm and Martinez cut a pretty damn good heel promo before the match saying friendship has nothing to do with being a good tag team and the faces should expect a first round exit. Casey hit a picture perfect sent on Atomico early in the match. Carter did this awesome missile dropkick on Martinez and then when she came off of it, she fell into a splash on Tony Storm. I've never seen that before. I'm sure luchadors and other high flyers have done it. I've just never seen it, or at least I can't remember seeing it ever before. Casey threw herself over the top rope with a tornillo onto Martinez, just as Carter was about to tap in Storm's like single leg submission. Io Shirai pulled Martinez off the ring apron as retribution, no pun intended, for her attack a couple weeks ago. Uh, Casey Ketnazaro then hit a reverse inverted, whichever one, black arrow senton. One of the sickest high-risk maneuvers I have ever seen to beat frickin' Tony Storm. Casey Catanzaro, with a ridiculous high-risk maneuver, beat Tony Storm. I'm gonna say it a third time. Casey Catanzaro, with a ridiculous high-risk maneuver, beat Tony Storm. The Casey's later cut a fantastic, energetic face promo and promised to win the entire thing. Shirai and Storm later on had to get separated backstage. Holy shit. This is such good shit. This was the surprise of the night. A completely fun match. A really solid piece of booking to have an interference from Shirai, but not have it directly factor into the finish. Meaning... She didn't push someone off the top rope who then got pinned. She didn't hold someone's leg. She didn't hit someone with uh, a briefcase outside and roll them into the ring. She just kind of took out a partner and allowed them, the faces, to focus on finishing their task, which was beating Tony Storm. 
So I absolutely loved that she just kind of gave them the upper hand. I have said it multiple times on this podcast that the KCs have a legitimate future as a tag team. Those two, Caden Carter, Casey Catanzaro, have it. And especially Casey Catanzaro has it. And I know she's tiny, truly tiny. And I know that you're never going to probably buy her going head to head with like a Charlotte Flair. But she can work with a Bailey. She can work with a Sasha Banks. She's still green. She's still extremely young in this industry. But she is a really, truly special athlete. She almost quit the business in 2020. There was a period of time where she was thinking wrestling was not for her and she was going to move on. They took her off NXT. She just was kind of gone for a couple of months. She decided to come back. I don't know if Ricochet, her you know real life boyfriend, had a lot to do with that. I'm not sure if he had a lot to do with this move that we saw. I'm not even sure if she hit that move the way it was supposed to be hit. But I'm really glad that she is wrestling. I'm really glad that she's getting more screen time and being featured with Caden Carter. You could pluck them. This women's division is so stacked and there are so few true women's tag teams on Raw and SmackDown. You could pluck them out of NXT and put them on either show and they would really entertain the crowd. Casey is a truly special athlete. You saw it on American Ninja Warrior. If that's a show that you watched, I personally did not. Though, of course, I think everyone saw the clips of her like winning the whole thing when she did that or conquering the course. I don't even know what she actually did accomplish. But you know she's a special athlete. Now she's figuring out the wrestling aspect of it. Not just the ability to do flippy shit, but the ability to actually compete and sell and do all those things. And Caden Carter has just continuously been underrated for basically her entire run in NXT. Seeing them put together being true baby faces, almost in a way that we haven't seen in NXT since Bailey, Allowing them to have that type of role, it's really going to work. I'm excited. Guys, I'm talking about NXT. We had a fight pit. I think I'm spending more time talking about Caden Carter and Casey Catanzaro. Catanzaro, sorry, I keep doing that. Um, I, I think I'm spending more time talking about them because I just see something there and it's really rare that you do. It's like when I used to go on tangents about Buddy Murphy. By the way, where the hell is Buddy Murphy? But it's like when I used to go on tangents talking about him. You just see that spark and you hope other people recognize it. And that's what I see with these two. I just, I love a pure babyface tag team and they have a really bright future ahead of them. I trust NXT to do a good job. And I now actually believe coming out of that match, they are legitimate contenders to win the entire women's Dusty Rhodes tag team classic. But we do need to go and talk about the men's tag team classic because a lot more happened there. Kushida and Leon Ruff were up against The Way in a first round match. Austin Theory hit a sick rolling dropkick and The Way dominated most of the match. Ruff nailed Theory with a twisting cutter off the middle rope before Kushida exploded after a hot tag. Theory broke up a Kushida armbar on Johnny Gargano. Then Ruff hit an Escalera senton splash outside giving Kushida and Gargano the ring. Kushida caught Gargano with a hoverboard suplex bridge and got the win in what I thought was a surprise booking considering the way is still really young as a faction. It was a damn good opening match of the show and Gargano Kushida for the North American Championship. Whenever that eventually happens, I think it's going to happen at this upcoming takeover, but whenever that does happen, it will ultimately rule. This was an NXT filled with surprise bookings. So we just talked about the Casey's, Kushida and Leon Ruff, a surprise here. And then we move on to the other match. It was a very heavy face night in NXT because we got another surprise win. You had Imperium going up against Lucha House Party. I went from complaining about Lucha House Party just a couple weeks ago because they were used as 24-7 fodder on Raw and they weren't doing anything to now seeing them on two shows per week putting on great matches. You're welcome. <laughs> uh, Grand Metalik hit a great splash off Lindsay Dorado's shoulders. Dorado made a diving tag with his head. Metalik hit a type rope hurricanrana and springboard moonsault, got a long two. Lucha House Party then hit an assisted dropkick Canadian Destroyer in a really sick spot. Uh, and there were numerous near falls going both ways. 
Lucha House Party both countered an Imperium tag team finisher. Metalik hit another beautiful springboard moonsault outside, and Dorano nailed a shooting star press for another stunning win. After the match, Alexander Wolf appeared and rejoined Imperium in the United States. It goes to show how strong NXT can build its wrestlers that a loss by Imperium here doesn't really get a second thought from anyone. It was more just surprising to see Lucha House Party get the shine in this spot. It's fantastic. Even though they're probably going to lose next round to Legato Del Fantasma, having Dorado and Metalik get this type of shine, have them be so incredible in this match was just a nice surprise. And this thing totally, totally exceeded expectations. Uh, There was a vignette for MSK that was supposed to teach us about the team, but there was actually nothing at all to be learned. So I thought that was just a total failure. If you're going to kind of tell me that you're going to teach me about a brand new team, then actually give me information about them. Instead, they just showed clips from their match and they said like five words and they joked around. It was, it was really stupid. Now the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic is also having matches on 205 Live, or at least it did for the opening round. So there are two other matches I watched 205 Live to talk about. I'm going to run through them very briefly. You had Drake Maverick and Killian Dane defeat Kurt Stallion and August Gray. There was a fun segment backstage with Maverick trying to convince Dane he's now a quote-unquote jeans guy uh, because he now dresses like him. He also remixed their silly theme with a hard rock opener. So Dane thought it was going to be good, but then by the time they actually made the entrance, he realized it was the same theme. Stallion and Gray are just pretty generic to me. I'm still confused by their elevation. This was too much of a free-for-all in the match. The referee, Asia Smith, uh, needs to be better. Dane powerbombed Stallion and then powerbombed Maverick onto Stallion for the win in a fun spot. It's typically what they do. Over on NXT, Drake Maverick said 2021 is going to be a good year for him, unlike 2020, because he has a best friend and partner in Killian Dane. Dane kind of bought into Maverick's pretty strong, impassioned promo and seemed motivated for them to move on and win another match next week. Also on 205 Live, we had Legato Del Fantasma defeat the Bollywood Boys. I don't like their gimmick, but the Bollywood Boys are better than people probably remember. This was not a noteworthy match, but Fantasma did win clean with their Russian leg sweep boot finisher. Uh, They need a better tag team finisher and they need a name if they're going to go with that one. So I don't know. They're a couple high flyers. They don't need to be doing a ground finisher like that. It just didn't make any sense. Over back on NXT, Santos Escobar tore into the other champions on the brand, pointing out all of their flaws and how they've been unable to defend their titles successfully. Escobar said he's backed up his trash talk and beaten everyone in his path. And now it's time for Legado del Fantasma to win the tag team championships. Lucha House Party interrupted and Legado beat them down until Kurt Stallion ran in to make the save. Lucha House Party and Legato, they're going to meet, as I said, in the Dusty quarterfinals, while Stallion has been waiting for his shot at the Cruiserweight title that apparently he earned on 205 Live like a couple months ago, I think. So that match is going to happen next week on NXT, the Cruiserweight title match. It was good to see Escobar. You guys know every time he gets to speak, he reminds me that he's really that Spanish-speaking star that WWE wants, more so than even Andrade. Escobar is truly the total package. So as we go into the next round of the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, we have Undisputed Era against a team yet to be determined. There's still one more first round match. It's probably going to end up being Champa and Thatcher winning it. So possibly Undisputed Era against Thatcher and Champa, Kushida and Leon Ruff against the Grizzled Young Veterans, MSK versus Maverick and Dame, and Lucha House Party against Phantasma. So that's just going to be a tremendously interesting quarterfinals. I'm not exactly sure who's going to move on. I would guess you get Thatcher and Champa, Grizzled Young Veterans, MSK, and Legato del Fantasma. That would be my guess for the semifinals, but we'll have to see how that plays out. And then lastly for NXT, just to wrap up, Bronson Reed defeated Tyler Rust. So early in the show, Malcolm Bivens was set to meet with William Regal, but Rust was there first got a match made with Reed. Bivens was really displeased with that because he wanted Rust obviously to fight an easier opponent. Uh, Isaiah Swerve Scott bumped into Reed ahead of the match, telling him to stay out of his business. That goes back to multiple weeks in the past. Uh, As far as the match goes, Rust pulled Reed off the top turnbuckle with an Irish curse. 
Reed came back with a senton and the tsunami for the win. Bivens used the loss as proof Russ needs to let him pick his battles, and Russ basically accepted. He said, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, this match was tough. It was in a tough spot because it came after the KCs. That was a lot of really high-energy, high-flying type of stuff. This took us right back down to the ground, and it was much slower, and the crowd really wasn't into it. Both of these guys are better than what we got from this match, but it was another building block for Reed on his successful run. My guess is they're building him up for a North American championship, so we're probably going to have Gargano, I guess, retain against Kushida, and then a little bit down the line, maybe around WrestleMania weekend, Bronson Reed goes up against Johnny Gargano, wins the North American Championship, at least as far as I'm concerned, that is my guess on how the booking is going to play out. So wrapping up NXT, look, the Fight Pit main event, exceedingly strong. The continuous development of the Finn Balor storyline, it works. You know, I didn't think it was anything spectacular, but they definitely got the ball rolling. The start of the women's Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, A+, you guys already know I'm all about that. The men's Tag Team Classic, it's not necessarily dominating yet, but we're still kind of working through. It was a 16-team, you know, opening round. So let's get to the quarterfinals. Let's get to the semifinals. Let's see how some of those matches go. And that's really it. You know, so it was a solid, good, strong, unspectacular edition of NXT. But you got to give credit where it's due to the main event because that thing absolutely ruled. Now, we're going to move over to AEW. And in order these days to talk about AEW, we first have to talk about Impact Wrestling. So Impact had its hard-to-kill pay-per-view, I believe, on Saturday. I did not get to watch it live. I usually, back in the day, used to get Impact would hook me up with some passes where I was able to watch the pay-per-views. I'm certainly not going to pay for an Impact pay-per-view these days. I mean, I never have. So I didn't get to see it because they didn't send me one. But I did get to see a lot of clips from the match. It was Kenny Omega and the Good Brothers defeating Rich Swan, who is the Impact World Champion, Chris Sabian, or Chris Sabin, I'm sorry, and Moose in a six-man tag team match. Moose was really impressive with a standing moonsault and a Spanish fly. He may have been the MVP of the match. And if you're going to be the MVP of a match with Kenny Omega, then yeah, you're certainly impressive. Omega had a great sequence in the finish with Moose and Swan. He ultimately hit the V-trigger on both, then the one-winged angel on Swan for the win. So Omega beating the Impact World Champion relatively clean for the win. We'll see what that develops down the line. Omega has discussed trying to be a gold collector, trying to you know take other people's championships. There could be a champion versus champion match in the future. And I do like Rich Swan, but you know, if we're being honest, he's not the strongest world champion for a company. So it would probably be better if, you know, Impact went in another direction if they're going to do champion versus champion with Omega. And then over on Impact's Tuesday television show, we had Private Party go up against Chris Sabin and James Storm. So what happened here is Matt Hardy and Private Party interrupted a Good Brothers promo to challenge for the titles and ended up in a number one contenders match. Tony Khan and Jerry Lynn sat ringside for the main event after another paid advertisement. Lynn interfered at the end of the match so Private Party could hit Gin and Juice to become the number one contenders for the Impact Tag Team titles. The talent sharing's cool, and I think Private Party can get good work in Impact. I would really be surprised to see a title change. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I would just be surprised. And they did pay off the Private Party stuff a little bit later on Dynamite, which we'll get to in a moment. Now, moving over to AE Dynamite, there were bright spots on this show, but from top to bottom, it was relatively unspectacular, borderline, below mediocre. I don't want to say bad. It wasn't bad, but it just, it was not a good episode of AEW Dynamite, at least in my opinion. But what I did very much enjoy was the main event. We got the Inner Circle Tag Team Challenge. So outside of Fight Pit over on NXT, I was looking forward to this match and these segments the most out of anything all week heading into Wednesday night. Chris Jericho told MJF the match would bring the faction together and he was not worried about any dissension within the ranks. MJF later spoke to the rest of Inner Circle without Jericho 
and said if it was up to him, the match wouldn't be happening at all. Sammy Guevara stepped up to MJF, but the other guys then separated them. MJF said he respected Sammy because he stands up for himself. So then we get to the main event and it is Jericho and MJF as one team against Santana and Ortiz, the real tag team from the inner circle. And then Sammy Guevara and Jake Hager, who are going by Sammy Hager, you know, just like the rock and roll guy who actually taped something ahead of their match, which I thought was a nice touch. Chris Jericho happens to know him personally. So they were able to get a short little video as they were making their entrance. So you guys know my first criticism about the match. It was a triple threat tag team match without triple threat rules. That's always disappointing to me when you only have two people wrestling during a triple threat tag team match. But that's the direction they decided to go. And that's what we will accept. Aubrey Edwards did a pretty good job keeping the tag rules intact for the first two thirds of the match, I would say. Once we got past that marker, the entire thing blew up. Uh, This started great though, with Guevara beating up on his ex-partner Jericho. Santana and Ortiz also got some licks in on him. MJF didn't tag in until late. When he did, he got absolutely obliterated on a hot tag by Hager. Guevara hit him with a springboard cutter and Santana and Ortiz went wild, clearing the house with a bunch of double team moves. Guevara hit MJF with a poison rana, then took Ortiz out with a top rope Spanish fly for a long two. Jericho called for his bat from Wardlow, but Hager booted him in the chest. Wardlow then handed MJF the dynamite diamond ring, so Hager just one punch knocked him out. It was unclear who was legal at this point of the match. Uh, Jericho then did the absolute worst lion salt of his entire career for a two. I saw a lot of people clowning on him about it for his age. I don't think it was actually an age thing. I just think he slipped. So I think he'll be fine coming back and doing it. But that is one of those moves, the lion salt, where it's like, all right, you are approaching over the hill status. Perhaps that is when you take out of your repertoire. But if he can still hit it, he can still hit it. And I do just think he slipped. Hager hit Hager bomb on MJF and Guevara followed with a really impressive swanton bomb, but the fall was broken up. Guevara then hit Jericho with the GTH and was set to do the same to MJF when Wardlow jumped onto the apron. Sammy knocked him off. MJF fell off Sammy's shoulders and rolled him up for the win as the TV immediately went off the air because it went too long and almost ran into the next hour. So the pacing was a little off, but it was a fun, really good match. It was pretty obvious that Jericho and MJF would win, and that's probably the right booking for the storyline that they're telling. But I would have loved to have seen Santana and Ortiz reestablished as a top top tag team. They're just kind of languishing there as if they're irrelevant. Meanwhile, they're one of the best tag teams in the world right now. Sammy was easily the MVP of the entire match. He has such a bright future ahead. The action here was really good, even if it was sloppy at times. There was a lot of good storyline development within the confines of the match, and it definitely delivered to my expectation. So I thought this was a strong main event and a worthy competitor of NXT's fight pit for sure. These two going head to head. I'm really curious to see what the main event final quarter hour ratings are, but both were awesome. Now moving into the rest of Dynamite, I did not love the rest so much, but this was okay. The elite were supposed to have a meeting, the Young Bucks visited Kenny Omega's house for a meeting and saw a really homoerotic oil painting of Omega and Don Callis, both ripped with their shirts off. The Bucks yelled at Callis for inserting the Good Brothers into the match last week. Callis said Omega wasn't able to make their meeting and changed his phone number on them. Callis handed the Bucks checks to compensate them for their 12-year friendship with Omega, and they were, of course, insulted. They accused Callis of manipulating Omega and went after him as the camera cut off. Callis is really doing great work here. He is probably second only to Paul Heyman right now in terms of consistency, delivering promos and segments. And it's really not that far off. I mean, Heyman's Heyman, the fact that he does it on SmackDown and Talking Smack gives him the edge. But Don Callis is truly doing great work right now. The Bucks were not really believable actors in this scene but it is an interesting continuation of the storyline. Now, back on Dynamite, Omega was dressed, he was dressed like a guy who does a lot of coke and hangs out in Miami clubs like throughout the 90s. You know the guy, like he drives a a red Corvette convertible, wears purple shirts, tight jeans, 
has those big glasses, uh, carries a pack of Mar- Marlboros like rolled up in his sleeve. That's what Omega looked like on the show. And I loved it. I thought, I thought it was great. That is not a criticism. Uh, Callus uh, played it off as if he didn't want to tell Omega who hit him. His face was all busted up in the locker room, but Omega kept pressing him and he eventually, quote unquote, accidentally said it was the Bucks. Later on, Omega and the Good Brothers attacked Penta El Zero M backstage and choked him out. And that looks like it's setting up a match between Omega and Penta. That'll be the third time they fight already in like less than a year and a half of television. But it looks like it's setting up a match between them at Beach Break coming up in two weeks for AEW. So that was good. You know, this whole thing with Omega and the Bucks, the Elite, the Good Brothers, that is all really good stuff. So those were the two segments that stood out for me. And to be fair, they were the most important segments on the entire show. So hitting on those is key. But man, everything else we got from AEW Dynamite, it just, it was rough. And we'll start with Sting. It's Sting coming out to congratulate Darby Allen. Sting said Allen reminds him of himself and he wanted to be the first to publicly congratulate him for being the TNT champion. Just as Sting was about to say his second sentence, uh, that he was not there to interfere in the match, Immediately, Taz interrupts him. He says they fought dirty while Team Taz has been gentlemen. Taz said the ball was in their court. Sting whispered something to Darby, and Darby said, be careful what you wish for because it just might happen. Folks, you can like this if you want, but it is the same shit every single week. And this is not a case of... Sometimes predictable things are good. It's not. It's much more of a case of... You can yourself too. Because if you're going to keep promoting Sting, being there every week as if something's going to happen and nothing ever happens, then you have to be pissing off viewers. And I'm just surprised that more people aren't as bothered by this as I am. Maybe just because they love Sting. So any chance to see him is a, is a good one. But it has now been, I don't even know how long it's been. What, two months of this exact same segment on Dynamite, and it's slightly different each time, but it's just the same shit every week. And now the expectation is we're going to get a cinematic tag team street fight as a way to have the 61-year-old Stinger get some action. In my opinion, this is not helping Darby one bit, which should be the goal of the entire thing. The fact that he won the TNT Championship is great. That should be the focus. Instead, the focus is whether Sting is a friend or a foe, and them possibly fighting Team Taz, which you have no reason to believe Team Taz can win anything because Team Taz has lost everything that it has ever done, basically, in AEW. It just feels like they're stretching a storyline to get Sting into some type of action. And they're kind of forcing Darby Allin into it because, hey, guess what? They both wear black and they both have black and white face paint. Uh, We had John Moxley make his return to action, defeating Nick Comorato. The guy Mox was fighting looked like he was out of the Geico Caveman commercials or a guy that Vince McMahon made into a caveman character from WWE in 1985. He was actually in the WWE Performance Center for a bit, but he never made it on television. This guy, by the way, just lost on Dark one night earlier, but got in a ton of offense on the former AEW champion. And if you're wondering, hey, Silver King, how do you know he lost on Dark when you don't watch Dark? Well, the reason I know is because during the match, they showed on the bottom line, they do the dark results, that this dude just lost (laughs) the night before. Yet, he's fighting John Moxley. The storyline was he was the only one who would sign the contract because everyone else was scared of Moxley. But he got in a ton of offense. Moxley sold as if he owed this guy money or something. Moxley eventually won with the sleeper. But it took way too long. I did not get the booking here at all. Mox is finally making his return. And you have him scratch and claw to beat a jobber who doesn't even have an AEW win yet. I guess it put the guy over a little bit, but no one's going to remember that when he's going to go back to losing on Dark. This isn't a guy you're going to push. I I just didn't get this at all. Maybe he knows him and wanted to do him a favor. It didn't make any sense. After the match, Mox cut a predictably great promo on Omega and going through any member of his entourage that Omega wants to bring. Mox said all roads in professional wrestling go through him. Solid promo, as you would expect from John Moxley. Jurassic Express interrupted FTR as it cut a promo backstage. 
Jungle Boy said he could beat either of them individually, so Dax Harwood accepted the challenge. That should be a good match next week. Eddie Kingston and Lance Archer got into a face-off after it was already announced they were fighting next week. Kingston demanded it be a one-on-one match with no one at ringside. I thought there was really good energy here. And Jake the Snake Roberts played a really nice role too, cutting a promo on Kingston. So I am excited to see that. We'll see whether Pac does factor into that in one way or another. We had a six-man tag team match, Matt Hardy and Private Party against Matt Seidel and Top Flight. This match was interesting because it was simultaneously entertaining due to all their athleticism and the paradigm of legitimate criticism about quote-unquote flippy shit wrestling. There was so much unnecessary and overindulgent choreography in this match. Mixed with that was incredible athleticism and some really inventive moves like a springboard hanging splash by Mark Quinn. Hardy was the clear athletic outlier in the match. Darius Martin speared Hardy with a tope suicida right into his collarbone into the ringside barrier. It looked like it absolutely sucked to take that move. Hardy hit three side effects and went for a triple cover, even though only one person is legal. So that made no sense. Uh, Everyone was wrestling and Bryce Remsburg did absolutely nothing about it. There were zero tag team rules in this match. Private Party then turned heel at the end of the match with Isaiah Cassidy using a chair behind the referee's back and Mark Quinn hitting the shooting star press for the win. I feel like the heel turn and the post-match attack confirming it all was both really good. Again, some of the action was fun, but it was just a logistical nightmare and a total booking mess. Top flight for me is still too green to be featured in major spots like this. What I do like is you had Private Party use cheating to win over on Impact, thanks to Jerry Lynn, an AEW representative. Now they're doing it themselves over on Dynamite to win. So clearly it's a heel turn. They attack the faces afterward. And you also have to think, is AEW the heel side in the entire Impact AEW brand war? And it really is because you have Tony Khan acting a heel in the paid advertisements. You have Kenny Omega, a heel, going after the Impact champion. And you have Private Party now as a heel uh, trying to go after the Impact tag team champions, except those guys are heels also. So that's certainly a weird dynamic there. But it is AEW is the heel side in the brand war. And I do find that to be interesting because you would expect almost that they would want to be faces. But the truth is, the heel side is what gets the heat. It's what gets people interested. The NWO debuted as heels. DX debuted as heels. So AEW being heels makes a lot of sense. And, you know, they already have a trademark on the name, so you might as well go and do that. Uh, Penelope Ford defeated Layla Hirsch in the women's match. You know the drill. The lone women's match came 90 minutes into the show with a double commercial break. Chuck Taylor is now Charles wearing a tuxedo working as Miro's servant. Hirsch is really good. Ford continues to improve. There was a good spot where Ford did a split, ate a knee, then a German suplex and some shots in the corner, but still kicked out. Hirsch took out Kip Sabian and Charles with an Escalera senton. That was completely unexpected from her. Then she ate a boot back in the ring. Sabian held Hirsch's feet down as Ford got the one, two, three. Ford and Hirsch didn't get 15 seconds. I don't even think they got five seconds to sell the match or for Ford to revel in her victory before Miro grabbed a mic and told Charles to tell Orange Cassidy that Miro is his new best friend. So he did. I have to hope this storyline ends in two weeks at Beach Break. AEW then announced a Women's World Championship Eliminator to determine a number one contender. It was sparse on details. It does look like it's going to feature 16 women, possibly eight American and eight Japanese. That would be 15 matches in total. But at the rate that AEW does women's matches on Dynamite, that would take four months to complete. So either they're going to have to do more matches on TV, or some of these are going to be kind of relative squash or matches involving unimportant people that they can either do on Dark or they can do another YouTube show or something. I have to believe they're not going to put them all on Dynamite. Again, it would take four months to complete it at the rate that AEW does women's matches. DM slide here from Luke Smith at 01Luke. He said, I enjoy a lot more of AEW than you do. It's probably not true. I normally enjoy AEW. 
but he said that. He said, but that Avalon Rhodes match was about the worst thing they've put on TV in a while. Right you are, Luke. Let's talk Cody Rhodes defeating pretty Peter Avalon. So Cody's entrance, that was all over the top and ridiculous, but we loved it, but we also hated it. It was kind of funny. Now it's just ridiculous. It, I, I just don't get what they're doing anymore with the Snoop song. I know they're promoting the go home show or the go big show. I know they're promoting that, but it's just it's a horrible entrance music. It's, it's really bad. Cody hit the crossroads right out of the gate, but Jade Cargill's music hit before he could go for the cover. So Avalon then caught Cody with a low blow due to the distraction. And then the match went on for like another 15 minutes. This match had no steam whatsoever. After the low blow, Cody couldn't beat this guy. He had Avalon in the figure four and only got the win because he threatened to slap him in the face. So the figure four leg lock didn't work on Avalon and Avalon didn't even sell it as if it was hurting his legs. The threat of slapping a pretty guy's face is what ended the match. What a piece of shit this was from top to bottom. Shame on them. Zero point zero. They then promoted that Cody will respond to Shaq next week. I don't even know what he's responding to. Seriously, I have no idea. I remember there was some segment with Brandy and Shaq, but I don't even, there was no takeaway from it. So whatever they're doing with Cody, I know it's TNT internal, NBA and and go big show promotion. It's just absolute garbage. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. And now we'll start with the opening of Dynamite. We'll close with the opening of Dynamite, which was Dark Order defeating TH2 and Chaos Project. So Hangman Page made a pretty awesome entrance flying off the top of the stage to the outside the ring area. It must have been like a 10 or 12 foot jump and a significant drop. A bunch of guys caught him. It was really cool. Then we get into the match. Uh, Luther ate a face buster into birthday cake. There were no rules whatsoever. You think there were no rules in the six man. There were no rules in this eight man tag team match. And Dark Order won with a combination buckshot lariat, German suplex, jackknife pinning combination. Page then turned down the Dark Order's invitation to join, but they had already set up a celebration, so they had to stop it after it got started. Page said joining groups hasn't worked out for him in the past, so he just has to go at it alone. He then walked up the ramp, took a jack bottle out of Stu Grayson's hand, and just kept on going backstage. Look, I get what they were going for here with negative one and having a birthday celebration and doing something nice for the kid, and I appreciate everything they've done for Brody Lee. But this whole thing was kind of strange. They promoted the birthday celebration and having cake and singing happy birthday before the show as a reason for people to tune in and buy tickets. But they did that without kind of saying all proceeds are going to get donated to the family or anything like that. So I thought the promotion of it was weird to start. Then they had it open the show. You can't have Luther... And Colt Cabana, along with a child, in the opening segment of your television show, when you're in a competition, or when you're just trying to get people to watch your product, and they may win the opening, the demo and the, and the ratings for the opening 15 minutes. I don't really know. And it doesn't really matter. That's not the point. I'm just being honest. It was really terrible. It was, it was poorly done. It wasn't really entertaining. And it would have been much better served for the midway point or the end of the first hour or the beginning of the second hour. Any other spot in the show, this would have been better than in the opening segment. There were so many other ways they could have opened the show. They could have opened the show with the MJF and Chris Jericho promo. Really, they could have opened the show with the Penelope Ford-Layla Hirsch match. Either of those would have been better. They could have opened the show with the John Moxley match. That would have worked too. This just was not booked well. It was not in the right spot. I did enjoy the false start celebration, but ultimately this was one of the worst openers to a show we've gotten from AEW. And it was definitely the worst AEW Dynamite of 2021. That's not saying much. There's only been a few of them, of course, and most of them have been good to great. So, you know, saying it's the worst doesn't really explain my opinion. It just, it really wasn't good. 
it was a low point for AEW as an entire episode. They can do much better. They have done much better. I anticipate that they will do much better next week and then two weeks from now with Beach Break. But just top to bottom, again, the, the inner circle stuff I loved, the elite stuff with the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, I like the booking. Don Callis, I think, is doing a great job. But everything else I talked about here, I mean, there's a lot of holes to poke, and that's not me looking for holes. I try to do the same thing with NXT. I do the same thing with WWE all the time. It was a shoddily booked two hours of wrestling television, and they deserve the criticism for it. So yes, this week, NXT, from a critical standpoint, does come out on top, but we still have a long road to go with both brands, and as we see things play out in 2021, up next for AEW is Beach Break in two weeks. Up next for NXT from a major show standpoint is the NXT TakeOver on February 14th, a Valentine's Day TakeOver. That should certainly be interesting. And both products really do have a lot of work to do to get to both of those shows. A little bit less for AEW leading up to Beach Break. From a storyline perspective, they're running pretty solid right now. NXT does. They need to finish up some storylines. They're going to have to finish booking the Io Shirai, Tony Storm storyline, Finn Balor, Pete Dunne, maybe the finals of the Dusty Rhodes Tag Team Classic, what's going to happen with the North American Championship. They do have some work to do in order to get to that date, but hey, we're still you know three weeks out from that. So NXT certainly has a little bit longer of a runway. But that was this week's edition, talking all things NXT and AEW. I thank you all for listening to the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Do not forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop a five-star rating and review. Let us know how much you love this damn show. Also, do not forget, head on over to Twitter and follow us at Getting Overcast. That's where you can send us tweets and DMs with questions for the show. We have a big week coming up next week on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. Tuesday will be our Royal Rumble Ultimate Preview. We will come back on Thursday with another NXT and AEW show. And then immediately after the Royal Rumble goes off the air, we will have instant analysis of the 2021 WWE Royal Rumble. And that's assuming nothing else happens in the week. We may get a couple interviews. We may wind up having to talk after SmackDown if something crazy happens on the go-home show to the Royal Rumble. We'll see what happens, but at minimum, a three-show week next week on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. The way you can listen to all of it is to make sure you hit that subscribe button if you are a first-time listener. I appreciate all of you checking out today's show. Thank you once again for listening. The Silver King is saying goodbye, so that means I have just three words left for you. Bye for now.